So I'm so excited to be here with Professor Ken Stone, who is a Distinguished Service Press Professor and Professor of Bible Culture and Hermeneutics at Chicago Theological Seminary. His research connects critical theory and biblical interpretation with a particular focus on gender, sexuality, animals, and ecology. He has published many pathbreaking articles and several books, in addition to his 1996 publication of his revised dissertation on sex, honor, and power in the Deuteronomistic history. Ken Stone's books include a couple of edited volumes on queer interpretation of the Bible, including a 2001 volume, Queer Commentary in the Hebrew Bible, and a 2011 volume, um, Bible Trouble, Queer Reading on the Boundaries of Biblical Scholarship. And his own 2005 monograph, Practicing Safer Texts, Food, Sex, and the Bible in Queer Perspective. This interest in critical theory and queer interpretation of the Bible has continued, but his most recent book-length publication, a 2017 volume on reading the Bible with animal studies, shows his inclusion of an animal studies and ecological component to his research program. And in our conversation just leading up to this interview, Professor Stone mentioned that he's just on the early stages of embarking on a project on queer ecologies and the Hebrew Bible, which we can look forward to hopefully uh, various iterations of in the uh, time to come. This interview builds in particular on a 2006 essay by Ken Stone, The Garden of Eden and the Heterosexual Contract, which appears in the 2006 volume, Bodily Citations, Religion and Judith Butler, which was edited by Eleanor Moore and Susan Samville and published by Columbia University Press. A series of reflections in that article that are developed further in an essay by Ken Stone, Bibles That Matter, Biblical Theology and Queer Performativity, that appeared in the 2008 volume of the Biblical Theology Bulletin. So that's some background on Professor Stone. And I'll now turn to my first question, which is both of these articles that I just mentioned, Ken, um, are scholarly pieces, and they link to the important work of Monique Wittig and Judith Butler. The main insights of these theorists can be pretty difficult, in my experience, for a beginning student to grasp. And I wondered if you could give students a sense of the main takeaway that you get from Wittig and Butler's work, and why you find these scholars so important. Great. Uh, thanks, David. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to have this conversation with you. Um, I would say that Wittig helped me formulate a problem while Butler, uh, who actually first drew my attention to Wittig, helped me articulate a path uh, uh, starting from that problem. So how would I move ahead from this problem? The problem was that it seemed to me at the time, uh, this isn't quite as true anymore, but it seemed to me at the time that LGBTQ readers of the Bible we're focusing primarily on those passages that were said to condemn same-sex activity. And uh, there, there was a lot of good research that resulted from those questions. Um, but it seemed to me that too little attention was being given to the fact that religious heterosexism isn't just grounded in negative statements about homosexuality. Uh, it's also grounded in a kind of valorization 
of reproductive heterosexuality. And that's why we still hear today that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And uh, although it's easy, I think, for a lot of us, you know, in higher education to sort of chuckle at that statement, it's got a lot of staying power. I mean, people still say it a lot. And I was curious about that. And uh, so VT gave me a way to theorize that situation with her uh, notion of the heterosexual contract, uh, which alludes to the social contract of Rousseau, the uh, philosopher. Um, And more specifically, she helped me theorize the influence of binary sexual division between women and men while grounding that binary in social realities rather than natural reality. So it's a little bit counterintuitive uh, because uh, whereas even a lot of feminists would say there's sort of a biological notion of sex and a lot of different cultural interpretations of gender on that, um, she was not content with that. And, uh, and, and she wanted to say even the, the level of sexual division is um, not entirely a natural reality. There's a, a social piece uh, to it. And so it seemed to me that when we find the Bible and its interpreters emphasizing this binary distinction between male and female, we see VT's uh, heterosexual contract at work uh, on a kind of subconscious level. I'm not saying anyone's trying to do this. It just sort of, uh, um, it happens um, across uh, the individual level. Now, Butler uh, agrees with Vitig about a lot of that, but she doesn't agree with all of it. Uh, so Vitig's solution is to kind of move away from sex uh, in a sort of utopian direction. And Butler doesn't find that utopian move to be persuasive. And so instead, she develops her performative theory of gender. It's commonly noted that she doesn't just mean performance here, uh, though bodily performance is included uh, in her theory, she's also appealing to a particular view of speech acts, including performative speech acts that bring into existence what they announce. So to use one of her own examples, a wedding consists of a number of speech acts and contextual constraints that, uh, taken together, bring a married couple into existence as a married couple. Um, but Butler also relied heavily on a critique of speech act theory that had been put forward by the philosopher Jacques Derrida. Now, I'm not going to try to summarize all of that here, uh, but for our purposes, what she argued was that speech acts are actually heterogeneous. They're imperfect. Uh, when, when their iterations, to use a word you, you mentioned, you used earlier, when their iterations take place, each one's a little different than the one that uh, came before. And so uh, they can bring about unexpected effects. We can cite or rearticulate a text in ways that bring out its instabilities. So to kind of wrap this part up, it seemed to me that this was true for some biblical passages as well, including Genesis two and three. Uh, there, there is enough instability there, enough uncertainty there in the text and in its histories of interpretation uh, for us to interpret the text in other ways with less certainty, with less stability. And so rather than doing away with biblical interpretation uh, and saying, you know, there's the Bible's bad for, you know, sexual minorities, leave it alone. 
rather than doing that, I think we can use a kind of proliferation. That's one of Butler's words, proliferation of biblical interpretation, drawing on actual, actual textual details uh, to destabilize the sort of taken for grantedness of the dominant interpretations. Um, so that's how they seemed useful to me, whether or not it all played out in a persuasive way to readers, I need to hear from others, but that was, uh, that was my thinking. Well, it certainly was, it was uh, persuasive to me and it's been persuasive to other students who I've shared your work with. Um, if I'm hearing you correctly, um, the Wittig and uh, Butler's work did at least a couple of things. Um, one was to, in a sense, problematize things, some other people approaching the Bible um, from a queer perspective weren't yet problematizing in the same way about the way the Bible assumes and promotes a form, various forms of reproductive sexuality and binary concept of human bodies. That's, so it problematizes that. And at the same time, Butler's work in particular destabilizes any, any too clear picture of what the Bible has to mean or whatever, that you can tease out ways in which the Bible, even in the process of promoting problematic structures and concepts, undoes itself. Um, and in that sense, you can sort of subversively reinterpret the text to, to show that the Bible is more than one thing in a sense. Is that, is that a fair assessment of what you're saying? Or feel free to correct me. Yeah, no, that's a very good assessment. Um, uh, I think that's true. And, and I think that uh, the, I can't remember the word you used, but whether it was instability or something like that, uh, I think we can find that uh, to use the language of biblical interpretation, we can find that in the text. Uh, we can find it in the theories that claim to go behind the text and we can find it in textual interpretation. So uh, we actually have a lot of uh, material to draw on to notice uh, the many ways in which the kind of uh, tensions, contradictions, instabilities, heterogeneities, uh, involved in the biblical text manifest uh, themselves. And it's that, and having noticed that, then we can follow Butler's advice not to kind of say these are wrong and so here's the right one, but rather to proliferate interpretations uh, that make, using the text and using traditions of interpretation, but proliferate uh, meanings that allow us to see a more complex view of what's going on with the biblical text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's part of what I think helps us keep coming back to the text, even though we've worked full time on it for many years. Uh, I, speaking of proliferation um, in both of your articles and then in some of your other work, um, you keep coming back to the creation stories of Genesis one to three, especially the story of the garden of Eden and, Genesis two through three. And this is, as I think you alluded to a, a bit ago, been a difficult text for many women and others. And I'm interested in what keeps bringing you back to this text. And do you see any particular potential in the text? So when, when I think about what text I'm interested in, um, I've got like one official strategy and then another strategy. And the, the kind of official strategy doesn't fit with Genesis, which is 
that I want to intentionally look for biblical passages that don't get enough attention, right? Because uh, I think attention to those passages, uh, they can, that can also destabilize our notions about what the Bible is. But in the case of Genesis, uh, something like the opposite is on my mind. Uh, here we have a text that's been cited from the beginning of Christianity, uh, really even before that in, uh, in some Jewish traditions, to try to ground current realities, you know. Uh, and uh, a, lot, a number of biblical scholars, uh, Carol Myers, Ted Hebert, I mean, they would argue that, in fact, these texts were put together to kind of explain why we have the world we have which kind of assumes the world that they had, right? Um, and, uh, and I think that that happens on not only with gender and sexuality. I mean, you mentioned the, the uh, animal studies work. I think a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say information. There's a lot of textual attention to the fact that we live with other creatures um, in, those, uh, in those early chapters of Genesis. So, you know, that being the case, uh, it seems to me that it's really important to take advantage of the tensions, the contradictions uh, that we find in Genesis, which are considerable, uh, as, as you know well, and, and not only in the first three chapters. Um, the, the advantage of the first three chapters, as I tell my students, is, you know, when, when people of faith say, you know what, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year, they at least get that far, right? So, uh, they're among the better known passages uh, from, from the Hebrew Bible. But also, if you look at the history of biblical interpretation, you can see that they are also among the most appealed to. Start already in the New Testament. You know, the writers of the New Testament appeal to um, the early chapters of Genesis to try to ground um, uh, certain realities and then on into early Christianity, um, you know, not only about sex, but what you should eat and so forth. Uh, we lost our uh, chance at immortality, you know, because of food. So we got to be careful about what we're going to eat, right? I mean, all that, all that sort of, uh, uh, it's time to fast uh, emphasis in early Christianity. So um, it's in some way, the, the very power and influence of these texts uh, that makes me want to grapple with them and not just ignore them um, because they're, they are fascinating texts, but they're also a lot less um, fixed in terms of their meaning than I think a lot of readers assume. Uh, we all read it as, as we are obligated to say today in light of our presuppositions and social location and so forth, um, but it, it seems to me that that Genesis is an especially clear example of that, because we have a lot of different types of interpretations of it that um, that tend to ground uh, people in positions they already hold. So uh, it seems like a good spot to try to look for a way to to resist some of those normative interpretations. I certainly find it to be so, too. Um, now, in your 2008 article, Bibles That Matter, you use the example of Genesis 2 to 3 to make some broader points about how interpreters actually create the text that they read. And you discuss how this gives a different perspective on attempts to interpret the Bible as either 
prohibiting or affirming certain kinds of sexual life or other sorts of norms. And I, I would be interested in hearing you talk more about this. Yeah, so some readers of Butler uh, forget. I'm, I'm going to go back to Butler because yeah, I discuss her in that article. Um, some readers of Butler forget that her notion of performativity was not grounded primarily in a theory of performance, though it's often understood that way. And it did incorporate uh, elements of performance, um, for example, in her discussions of drag shows and so forth. Uh, but her larger framework was grounded in a theory of linguistic speech acts, uh, which included the performative speech act, the speech act that brings something into existence under the right circumstances. So Butler brought that linguistic theory to bear on the bodily acts that bring into existence our notions about sex and gender. And so in the Garden of Eden and the heterosexual contract, I was mostly interested in pursuing those questions about sex and gender. How does the combination of the text of Genesis and our interpretations of that text bring about a certain idea of binary sex? And how can we challenge that? But in the Bibles That Matter article, the one you're asking about, um, I decided I wanted to back up from there, as it were, and ask what might it mean to bring this theory to bear on our notion that we have a single stable Bible? Um, uh, in, in a sense, I'm bringing a speech act theory back into the register of linguistic acts uh, where it began. But I'm asking, what does it mean that our traditions of interpretation give us this sense that we're dealing with a single book, a single stable Bible? Isn't that Bible also a product of acts, uh, including acts of interpretation um, that brought it into existence and still bring it into existence? There are other biblical scholars who were already using the Derrida's version of uh, theories of performativity uh, in this way to kind of challenge our notion of um, the stability of a text and its meaning. Um, but I think what, what happened to me was I, I, when I initially encountered all that, I wasn't all that interested in it. But because I kind of took the detour through Butler, then I became interested in it and uh, interested in thinking about, you know, as, as people would challenge uh, Butler on, you know, what about the materiality of the body? And so she would, you know, allow, bring her theory to bear on that question. I started thinking about the materiality of the Bible, uh, the Bible as a kind of substantive thing. And uh, couldn't the theory also hold um, about the Bible? Whether or not that was successful. I, that's a very theoretical argument. Um, uh, I don't get a lot of people, you know, I get more people asking me about the Garden of Eden one than, uh, than that one. Um, but that was the idea behind it. Maybe part of why I find that article interesting, especially right now, is my, I myself am focused more on the materiality of texts, um, particularly as scrolls at an early period. But um, it's taken me to realize this sort of physical aspect of the Bible that biblical scholars who are often who treat texts as sort of this incorporeal essence don't pay attention to. And I can imagine how there's something about a Bible artifact that would in, encourage this sort of approach to the Bible as a single stable thing. You could have somebody holding a Bible up, an actual 
physical Bible and saying some verse out of it as if that verse is what the Bible says. And in that sense, they reinforce a sense that the Bible is this single stable thing by way of deploying the physical object, which, you know, looks like a single stable thing. Um, but what I, what I, what I'm hearing, what I heard in your article, and I think I hear in, in what you're saying, but please correct me if I'm wrong, is that that can be almost as misleading in a way as thinking that a musical piece is a single stable thing because you could hold up a score. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when in fact, any good musician knows, especially a jazz musician, I love to play blues, um, Hammond blues, um, is that that score is just a jumping off point. Um, the virtuosity comes in the ability to do something with it, often as part of a broader community who celebrates certain kinds of improvisation or whatever, and there are different genres and places where you can do that. And I can, it seems as if what I'm hearing you highlight is, is, is something that many people want to mask because they want to present what they're doing with the Bible as just the Bible, mm-hmm. when in fact it's, it's part of this proliferation of different interpretations. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, if I could just add one thing, um, when you talked about, you know, people saying, well, there's the Bible, it's a thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't remember exactly when this happened, but uh, one of my PhD professors, uh, when I was, I was talking with her at one point, and she noted to me how, of all things, textual criticism is a useful tool in kind of queer destabilizing of the Bible because uh, it, it's not, as you know, uh, there's not just one text of our Hebrew Bible. Uh, there are these multiple physical texts and they are different from one another in the, way, uh, in the ways that bodies are. And we kind of abstract from that um, the, the notion of a Bible uh, and, and then there, of course, there are the levels of translation and, and all that. Um, so I, I, I would actually at some point like to revisit that 2008 article and try to bring it a little bit out of the, um, uh, not just focused on that level of theory, which I was very interested in at the time, but think about a little more pragmatically, uh, about how the, the material artifacts that we have to interact with um, actually can be better fit into this theory uh, than into the notion that, you know, people who pull out their Bibles on Sunday mornings and think there's, they're looking at the same thing that everybody else is um, and that it's just there. It was not complicated. I'd like to revisit that at some point or someone else can revisit it. Uh, I mean, your view about how the Bible comes together is itself a, a real sort of complicating of our notion of what the Bible is. That's a great example of the text criticism of also this uh, way in which things are more complicated than people realize at first. Mm-hmm. Um, my next question relates to the fact that the articles that we've been referring to were both written over a decade ago. And I wondered if there are ways that your thoughts about queer interpretation and Genesis 1 to 3, or the Bible more generally, have shifted in the subsequent years since you wrote this work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I have an immediate answer to it, um, which is that if 
I would want to reshape uh, at least the Garden of Eden article. Um, I would want to reshape that in ways that took better into account transgender interpreters and bodies, uh, which, which is a much bigger issue now in uh, academic work than it was when I wrote that article. And it, it was bigger then than my article uh, acknowledges. I, I was just not um, as focused on it. Uh, but I think the openings are there for a more transgender reading of the Bible that would be in agreement with a lot of things that I say, um, but that would also need to build it out in different directions, you know. Um, among others, I, I think it would be really great. I do mention this uh, in the article, but I think it would be great to uh, sort of follow out that uh, the, the whole Jewish interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis that read chapters one through three sequentially. So there is first a creature that is male and female, and then subsequently get split in two, uh, which, uh, um, you know, in, in some of the articles about that is, is talked about in terms of androgyny. But I think you could do a really creative transgender reading of Genesis that would capitalize on that notion um, and, you know, build on that history of, of interpretation. I, I think that would be, uh, that would be my biggest, uh, biggest change. And, and, you know, there, there are more, there are trans readings of the Bible out there, but they tend not to focus on Genesis as much. And, uh, and I can see why they wouldn't immediately go there for all the reasons that I said, you know, um, in the, in connection with VTIG, that it sort of, uh, tries to stabilize a binary notion of sex, but it seems to me that a resistant reading would have a lot to work with there. Um, I, I think that would be the main thing that I would want to, to change. Yeah, it's fascinating how our interpretations shift as we, we all learn more about the kinds of questions to ask. I certainly find that myself too. Um, now, I, my last question sort of just relates to the fact that this, this uh, interview, I'm hoping, will not just be of use to my students, but hopefully maybe to other students down the road. And you have years of experience teaching at Chicago Theological Seminary, including mentoring LGBTQ plus students. And I wondered if you had a final word or words of advice uh, for students who are beginning their academic study of the Bible and maybe watching this video as part of taking an intro or an early course, including students who've often found themselves wounded by the way the Bible's been weaponized to attack their embodied selves. Uh, yeah, I, I, my, I wish my answer to this was better developed than uh, it's going to be. But uh, a couple of things that did come to mind. Um, first of all, I think it really is important for students of the Bible to understand that they now have an opportunity to really read the Bible without automatically agreeing with everything they've been taught about it. You know, now that doesn't, I mean, they might still end up agreeing with everything they've been taught about it, uh, but they don't have to. They're given an opportunity to ask questions and to explore. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, that's really important across the board. Uh, but including for the readers that you talked about who may have found the Bible used against them. Um, I also think for those readers, and, and that's a lot of readers. I mean, you know, we're talking about all women, for example. 
Um, I, I think that uh, recognizing the instability of the Bible, which is one of the themes that I tried to bring out in, uh, in both of these articles, is important. Um, I understand the impulse to say, just don't read it. You know, it's, it's caused too much trouble. Um, let's put it aside. And I think if some people want to do that, that's, I don't have any reason to talk them out of it. But I also think that for readers who do want to stay engaged with the Bible, trying to understand that they have their own agency as interpreters um, and, and that they can use that to bring out elements uh, that might not otherwise have been apparent. But then third and last, uh, I also think, and this might be unpopular with students, but I also think that um, it's easier to bring out those instabilities if you kind of go through the boring, what one of my professors used to call spade work of, you know, you, you learn the source theories and you look at the textual criticism and uh, you figure out the verbs. And I mean, all that kind of stuff can seem uh, in the, at the moment you're in the library and you're like, I don't know what a PL is. Why, why do I have to learn this? I want to do a queer reading of the Bible, but no, it really is important to try to ground your wrestling with the Bible, uh, in an actual engagement with the body of the Bible, uh, the, the, or bodies of the, of the Bible, the material forms that it has taken, which means spending time with those, uh, uh, less exciting sometimes uh, reality. So I would just encourage students who really, really want to engage biblical interpretation um, to stick with it through that kind of dull. <laughs> it's not all dull, but um, uh, those stages or to realize, you know, if, if they don't want to do that, that's fine too. But I think that that's an important part of what it means to engage the Bible around these issues and, and other issues like ecology, for example. That's so, that's a great note to end on. Cause I, there is a lot of hard work, mm-hmm. I think in, um, in, in learning a new field of study. And it's not always clear at the beginning what the payoff is going to be uh, for some steps in it. So I appreciate that encouragement to students as they engage in this adventure. Um, yeah, I, while we've been teaching online um, during the pandemic, uh, I've been doing my intro class uh, and I've been kind of bombarded with emails uh, from people who would normally have been in a face-to-face class and wouldn't have asked us. And they're like, why are you making us learn this stuff, right? Why, why do we have to learn about this other text from the ancient Near East or, you know, form criticism or something like that? But I think that that is really useful if you want to engage the Bible for resistance. Um, it's not all equally useful, but it is, it is useful. Excellent. Well, thank you. And your work has certainly been incredibly useful as well. And, um, I really appreciate you taking time out to share some background on it and to add nuance. And, um, we'll look forward to seeing what comes next in terms of your, uh, your work on, um, queer ecologies in the Hebrew Bible and yet other topics as you go forward. Thank you, Ken. All right. Great. Thank you.